0: The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com.
1: This morning we're continuing in our series of looking at powerful service, of coming and saying God has called us to serve the needs of one another for the ultimate expression both of his glory but of uh, leading others to a saving relationship in Jesus Christ to go and to make uh, disciples. Last week we considered uh, in Acts how our mission is from Christ, our example is from Christ, and our power is from Christ. And so we go out and we do that. And here at the church, our serve ministry is developed around uh, the the verse that says that we are to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, our local area. And then, in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then through the ends of the earth. And so we have local serve team, we have a national serve team, we have an international serve team who works on behalf of you uh, in our church. Uh, to consider ministry partnerships of how best and strategically uh, to take your incredible generosity through your tithe and offering, uh, through a special offering that we will give next week of commitment to give up and beyond uh, our regular giving to the Lord. And we partner with ministries that we believe show the love of Christ in a great and a profound way. Uh, We do that here in different ways. We heard last week from Shannon Biedenbaugh and some of the ministry uh, that we've been able to do uh, across the street in the schools. This week, we're going to hear from a national partner of ours. Uh, Statistics show that the most effective way to see people come to faith is through church planting. It's through starting a new fellowship in an area strategically to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we've partnered with a friend of mine, Sean Sawyers, who was a pastor in our presbytery in Orangeburg for a number of years, and we are partners in a church planting work in the northern part of Boston. And so Sean, uh, this morning, experiencing what the weather forecast said was a flash freeze. I don't know what a flash freeze is, but I'm thankful we live in an area of the country that doesn't have that. But Sean is going to share with us now by way of video. Uh, an update on what the Lord is doing there through our partnership.
0: Hello, Hildenhead. Greetings from the far north. Uh, My name is Sean Sawyers, and I and my family are church planting in Metro Boston, Massachusetts. Now, for those of you who are new, perhaps I didn't get to meet when I was there several years ago, I was the pastor of Trinity Presbyterian Church down the road from you in Orangeburg until 2016, uh, when the Lord called us up here to the big, beautiful city of Boston. So Boston has roughly the same population as the entire state of South Carolina, but only a fraction of the churches. So, as part of the PCA's Christ the King network, we've planted Boston North Presbyterian Church in the northern suburbs of Metro Boston, sort of near the top right of this picture here to my side. Now, if you were in this picture, from downtown, what you would do is you'd hop on the subway and you'd head north. But that's not what they would say up here. They would say you hop on the T, you grab the orange line, and you head up to Oak Grove. And when you got to the end of the line, you would get this view, looking back towards the city. This is the downtown of Boston from the north. And this is how we like to see downtown up here. We live and minister in the community of Melrose, Uh, It is beautiful, obviously it is family friendly, and it is one of the oldest, perhaps even the original suburb in America. Most of the houses are built in 1880 to 1920, and it is the gateway to the other northern suburbs of Wakefield and Reading. Now these three communities have about 150,000 people total, and we are desperate that they would believe the gospel and confess faith in Christ as the resurrected Lord. And that's where you come in because Boston North Presbyterian Church would not exist without your prayers and financial support for us over the past two years. We began as a small group meeting for prayer and fellowship and Bible study uh, in homes. Uh, And then just before this past Halloween, this past fall, we were able to find a great place to rent right in downtown Wakefield with great visibility. And so we launched weekly worship services just before Halloween. And since then, we've had steady visitors and we are gearing up for a big spring and a really good Easter campaign. And we are praying that through our efforts to build relationships with hospitality and serving the community, uh, the Lord would open up doors for us to share our faith and add to our numbers those who are worshiping Jesus as he deserves. Because again, we are desperate that our neighbors whom we love and have gotten to know would come to know Jesus. So thank you for your support. We simply would not be here without you.
1: I hope you're encouraged to know that you're part of a church plant in the northern part of Boston. Isn't that awesome? To think that because of your generosity and because of God's strategic vision and mission, he has gotten us involved in seeing people come to faith in an area of the country that many of us have never been to and may never go. And he put a Southern boy up there to do it. And so when he said, "You're going to take the T line and go up there," probably up there they wouldn't have quite the Southern draw uh, that Sean had uh, when when he says it. And as someone who has planted a church, starting All Saints Presbyterian in Memphis back in 2000, it's hard work. It's lonely work, and one in three church plants fail. And many times they fail because of the spiritual unpreparedness of the church planter, of poor leadership choices, but in general, the fact that the evil one knows the effectiveness of the church, a new church, and does everything he can to stop it. So be in prayer for Sean and for the saints who are gathering there and that the Lord would, as he said, add to their number day by day, those who are believing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's the text that we're looking at. That comes from Acts chapter 2 of the apostles uh, had now been waiting for Jesus at the end of Luke, in the beginning of Acts, and Jesus said, I'm going to be ascended from here, from the mount, and when I go, you're not going to see me anymore until I come back again in the glory of my Father. But I'm going to leave with you my Holy Spirit, the promised one, I spoke to you about him. I preached to you about him. He is the third person of the Trinity. He is equal with God the Father and God the Son in power and in glory. And he is going to come and he is going to descend upon you and you will now have power to complete my ministry through your efforts and your work. Remember last week we said it's Christ's ministry. He left and he left his ministry for us. And so we asked the question, would he recognize his ministry in our lives and in our church? If he came back, would he recognize his ministry in our lives and in our church? Would he see what he began now coming and being completed through what we are doing? And so the disciples were there and they received the Holy Spirit on the day, which was called the day of Pentecost and the Holy Spirit descended upon them, and they manifested incredible signs, and they spoke uh, in the tongues, and people from other nations heard in their own language the gospel being proclaimed, and it was an incredible event where thousands of people came to faith, putting their faith in Christ the Messiah, and there was revival, as it were, and the first churches were established in Jerusalem. And now we come to uh, this part after Peter had stood up and preached and God had been doing all of this amazing stuff. uh, We come and we see now in Acts chapter two, verse 42 of the believers gathering together. And it's in this passage of scripture, people have asked me, but where did we get our four pillars uh, of our ministry statement to say that we celebrate, uh, that we renew, uh, that we live in deep community and that we serve? It comes from this passage. And I'm going to add, I'm going to split one uh, a little bit and add a fifth dynamic this morning to our conversation. But those four pillars that we talk about in our life come from this passage. For you see, in Matthew 28, Jesus says, now go into the world and make disciples. And so if he said, go and make disciples, it is incumbent upon us to know what a disciple looks like. To know the marks of a disciple, so that we can target our ministries, that we can prayerfully aim all of our energy and effort towards the creation, as it were, of disciples, to develop that within your life if you're a regular member and a tender of our church. If you're new and touching uh, the church again, maybe for the first time, to say, This is what we want to see developed in your life, because we are called to make disciples. And so now, in chapter 2 of Acts, we see some of the marks of a true follower of Jesus, a disciple. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. This is the very word of the Lord. And they, that is the disciples, the Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would teach us By your word and through your word, that your spirit would open our minds as you opened the minds of the disciples as you walked with them, that they might understand the scriptures. So now by your spirit, would you open our minds that we would understand your word, that we would take it to heart and that we would live accordingly. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So the essential question is, what is a disciple? You could go online, do a Google search, and you would find list upon list almost every ministry that is in a disciple-making ministry. The Navigators, Young Life, FCA, uh, churches have different uh, lists that say uh, what is a disciple. We would say that all of those lists have absolute validity, and that ours isn't the sancto-sanct list, it's not the only list, but it is what we want to see and what we believe the Scriptures highlight as marks of a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. Now make sure as we start out that you don't make a dichotomy that is an unbiblical dichotomy. And that dichotomy is this, to say that you can be a Christian and not a disciple. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. You can't be a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, and say, I'm not a disciple of Christ. What happens in the evangelical church, in the American church, we allow that dichotomy to happen. We allow that intersection to split, as it were, off, because we like to say, well, I'm I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a Christian, but I'm not like one of those crazy people, a true disciple over here. No, a follower of Jesus is one of those true crazy people who basically says Jesus is my life and my life is oriented solely and 100% around him and I will do everything uh, to his glory and to his honor and by his expressed and shown will. So that's what we're talking about today. So the five things that we're going to highlight uh, are that a disciple, to be a disciple means to worship. At the very core of being a disciple is one who worships, celebrates is the language that we use uh, in our mission, mission vision, and mission statements. It says that the disciples here in verse 42, and they, that is the Christians, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Many commentators believe that what this is is the gathered community coming together for regular worship. That there is a part of the regular worship. There are those components that make up a worship service. The expression of God's Word, the preaching and teaching of God's Word, the regular celebration of the meal or the sacraments that are there, that we pray together and for one another, and that there's fellowship within that. This sort of the marks of what a church is. And it says later in that, an awe came upon them in all that they were doing. And to the end it says that they praised God in verse 47. That there was a sense in their lives of the ultimacy of who Christ is, of recognizing what had happened to them and knowing well before hundreds of years, if not thousands of years before the Westminster Catechism, Shorter Catechism was written. And that first question was asked, what is the chief end of man? They understood that the chief end of man was to glorify God and enjoy him forever that the very express purpose of our creation was to reflect the glory of God back to himself, to have it emanating out of ourselves by the power of his spirit, to say we want to point everything and everyone to the beauty of our God, that it is an act of worship. John Piper wrote uh, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, he said, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Mission exists. Because worship doesn't. You see, the end goal of going overseas to missions, going around the country on mission and serve work, to do that kind of work locally and in our communities, the ultimate goal is to create, as it were, is to make worshipers of Christ, to present Christ to them in all of his glory, the beauty of the gospel, so that they would turn their hearts from whatever it is they're worshiping because everybody's worshiping something. Currently today, whether you say that you're a Christian or not, you are worshiping something. You have bound yourself to something and saying it has ultimate worth within my life. Now, anything other than Christ is an idol and we don't have time to fully go into it. But let me tell you this about the idols that you're currently serving. They will always disappoint you if they haven't already. They will always disappoint you. We said last week that they are cisterns made by hands that are cracked and we keep going back to them and back to them and back to them and find absolutely no satisfaction for the depth of our soul. And Jesus is saying, come to me, the wells of living water and drink from me and I'll satisfy your soul. Worship and glorify me, he said in these things. You see, at the heart of a disciple of Jesus is a passion to worship him above anything else. He is primary. In the disciples' life. Sadly, through the course of close to 30 years of ministry, I hear so often a refrain that comes in various and different ways, but the refrain is I love Jesus, but. Have you ever tried to give an apology to your beloved that includes the word but? Let me help you if you have. When you say, sweetheart, I am so sorry that I acted the way I acted and raised my voice when we were talking. But if you weren't such a jerk, it would be a whole lot easier to be in relationship with you. But I'm sorry. By the way, everything previous to the but has been absolutely negated. There is a line through it. Because what you're saying is this, I'm really not sorry. Sorry. I'm really not sorry. I'm saying that, but what I really want to do is point out your problems and letting you know that if you fixed your problems, I wouldn't have to react the way I do. When you say, I love Jesus, but I'm not willing to give up the lifestyle that I'm currently in. I love Jesus, but I'm not going to be a generous person. I love Jesus, but I'm not going to forgive this person. I love Jesus, but... It has a powerful effect on everything that comes in front of that. But you have to question whether Jesus has in your life an ultimacy. Because if he has an ultimacy in your life, then everything is on the table. Then you say, I love Jesus. And I am willing to fight through the incredibly difficult struggle that it will be to give that up in my life. Because Jesus is worth it. He is worthy of the praise of my life. And so I'm going to amend my life because of who He is. Because of the glories of who Christ is, I am willing to enter into the struggle. I'm willing to enter into the fray. I'm willing to walk away from this. I'm willing to walk towards that. I'm willing to do this. I am a follower of Jesus Christ and He is preeminent in my life. End of story. You see, we really could stop there. We don't list our uh, pillars one, two, three, four, because we want you to understand that all of them are important. But I can tell you this, this one should be labeled number one. The worship of God supersedes everything else. And from the proper worship of God and the worship of Christ comes everything else. It all falls into line. It is all informed by that when Christ has his preeminence in your life. If you're here and you're going, I don't know, I've been burned by the church before. I'm sorry for that. I wish that hadn't happened. But I can say this, Christ is worth your life. He is worth you coming back and reinvestigating. He is worth you coming and saying, I'm worthy of all. And my hope is that as you engage with people within our community of faith, you see these things. And the one thing that you see more than anything else is that we say Christ is preeminent. And so he informs everything that I do. He is primary in my life and my personal happiness and my well-being is subordinated to his glory. That's what the life of a disciple has primarily is that of worship. So a disciple of Jesus Christ who's being transformed by the power of the gospel is a person who worships Jesus above all else. Yes, here. Yes, we want to see you sing more. Yes, we want you to express yourself in worship. But I want you to go out from this place and when you see the beauty of creation, your heart is captured in worship. That you see the God of creation within creation and through creation. And you see that and when you consider uh, the gospel and how it transformed your life, that you worship him with praise and adoration so that it's public, yes, corporate prayer, but it's also private worship in your life. A disciple means to worship. A disciple means to learn. A disciple has as a very core element of our lives that of learning it says in verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Interesting word there, devoted. What are you devoted to? I can't answer that for you, but it's interesting. All of us are devoted to something, and some of the ways that we can figure out what that are, how do we spend our time, how do we, uh, what's in our checkbook and all there, what is it that we're devoted to? a lower handicap, a higher score on this, more money, a bigger house. So this uh, to be married, to have children, to get the children out of the house, to whatever it is, we're devoted to something. And it says that they were devoting themselves to the apostles teaching. They were coming to the apostles. And you may go, That's just why would they do that? Doesn't sound all that interesting. But they understood David's words. And he said, your word, Lord, is like honey to my lips. They were fascinated with Jesus. For many of them, they had never met him. But they had the 12 men who had or 11 men who had along with many of the other disciples who were there. And they would gather around and they'd say, tell me about Jesus. What was he like? Who did he hang out with? Who was drawn to him? Were there any other people who had my skin color? Were there any other people who spoke my dialect? Were there any other people who were like me? Were there other people who who were broken like I was broken? Was there anybody else who struggled with an addiction like I struggle with? What was Jesus like? What did He say? I didn't get to go up on the mountain and hear Him talk and, and preach. He said, blessed are whom? Blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are them. Oh, I want to hear that more because it resonates with my heart. I want to know these things. I want to hear the apostles teaching. Well, guess what? We have the apostles teaching right here. Sixty six books of the apostles teaching of the Lord's teaching to us through his Holy Spirit preserved for us over the years by his Holy Spirit. And is it honey to your lips? Do you devour it? Do you want to study it? Not because you're like, ah, crud, another new year. I got to get into a study and do the study. No, because you want to. You're you're mesmerized by Jesus. You want to know him. Think about what mesmerizes you. I know as a dad, I'm mesmerized by my sons. Even as grown men, I'm fascinated by them. I study them. I studied them since I first held them when they came out of the womb. And I study them now as they grow into manhood and have their own families and set out on their own journeys. I'm mesmerized by them. So when I see them, I ask them all kinds of questions about their lives. I want to know them. I love when I'm in their company. I enjoy empty nesting, but I miss them. And I want to keep knowing them over the course of time. Is Jesus that interesting to you? Is he sweet to your lips? Does he bring about something in your life? You go, oh, that's awesome. Lisa and I are kind of doing a a reset in what we're eating because Thanksgiving is followed quickly by Christmas. And so one of the resets is dropping sugar. And some friends of ours lovingly gave us a box of like the world's best toffee uh, at Christmas. And we didn't get through it fast enough. And so it's been sitting as Odysseus's siren in the refrigerator for weeks now and we were giving it away last night to some friends to get that temptation out. But just to make sure that it was still good, I made it a little bite. Oh, man. Oh, go for about three weeks without it, and then taste it's like, oh, so good. David said, that's what God's Word is like to my heart. It's the sweet taste. It's that thing that you go, oh, that is so good. And giving it away... Like we did that box to our friends. It was hard last night to see it go. I'm going to miss it. But do I miss this the same way when I go a day or two or a week without it? Most of us don't miss it. It's not sweet to our lips. We're not mesmerized. My encouragement for you as a follower of Jesus Christ, fall back in love with Him. Be mesmerized again by Him. Want to know everything there is to know. Be a learner again. Be a student of him. Devote yourselves to the apostles teaching. To be a disciple means to worship. To be a disciple means to learn. To be a disciple means to share. Verse 44 and following. And all who believed were together and had all things in common They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with gladness and with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were believing. Look at what they were sharing. We're going to talk about serving where I'm kind of splitting it a little bit, but they're sharing what their life together. They were together. They were together in temple. They were together, uh, as it were, going about life. They were together having meals. They were together in life. They were sharing their life together. A disciple shares her life with others. A disciple shares his life with others, and others share their lives back. That's part of the one anotherness. Go and see all the beauty of the one another's in the scripture, that we love one another, we care for one another, that we're with one another, that we live with one another peaceably, that we encourage one another, that we're in close enough proximity not to just be neighbors, but to be family. That we don't just live near each other, but we live with one another. That's incredibly different. I look around and I see so many of you and what you have at the depth of your being is a need that is not being met by the world around you and that is to share your life in a place that can be trusted. We're imperfect yet and it'll get messed up at times but the church is supposed to be a place for people to come and share their lives. To come in and say can I be accepted here? Can the scars and the wounds of my past can, can I come here and be loved by other people? Can the ways that the fall and the sin that so easily ensnares us, can those battles that I find myself in, can I share them with you? And you not step back from me? Folks, it's an aside, but let me tell you another mark of discipleship. This would kind of be three, maybe A or B or whatever. A disciple doesn't flinch. When someone shares their story with you, and you go, ooh, whoa, hey, you're done. They will never share their story with you again, or it will be a very long time. For you see, when we as disciples of Jesus are engaged with others, be it those who are not Christ followers yet, And we're engaged with them in their brokenness. Guess what we should expect from a broken, busted up world who doesn't leave Jesus? Behavior that looks like a busted up, broken world that doesn't love Jesus. It can't get sanctified and then we won't flinch. We walk into it and we should feel emotions of anger. Not at them per se, but of anger of seeing the effects of evil in their life. The effects of the evil one who seeks to destroy them and it breaks our heart and we get angry over it and we pray against evil one for them that they would be freed from that. We would sense grief and sadness of that brokenness that we enter into and share. And then we would sense honor that they invited us into a sacred space to say, this is my heart." It has been broken by about everybody else that I've shared it with, and I'm hoping that you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, who's tattooed with his name right across your forehead, who says you love him more than anything else in the world. I'm hoping that I can present this to you and share my life with you and you won't flinch because everybody else has flinched. Folks, that's the sharing that they did. They shared around meals. They shared while they walked together. They shared why they worshiped together. They shared life. Life groups are only a means to an end. They are not the best thing in the world. They're good. We encourage you to be in them. But share your life. Be a part of somebody else's life. Someone once asked me to quit doing the little welcome time that we do. I said, why? He said, it's the loneliest time in church because everybody says hello to me and then no one ever speaks to me again. Folks, say hello and then say hello again afterwards. Reintroduce yourself because guess what? You probably forgot the person's name and it's okay to go. I want to be intentional about this. I want to get to know you. I'm glad to meet you. Maybe we get together. How about this? How many of you are in a life group currently? Raise your hands up. You want to know the best way? If it's something that's beneficial and valuable to you, sharing life, here's the best way to get other people to be involved. Invite them to your life group. Hey. On Sunday nights, we get together and it's incredibly meaningful for us. And I think it'd be incredibly meaningful for you to be a part of that. Hey, we get together on Wednesday nights. Hey, we get together on this night. Hey, we get together and we do this. I think this would be great. Would you come share your life with me? And I promise I'll meet you at the door. I'll come with you so you don't have to walk in a stranger. That's on us. Don't wait for the church to figure that out. We come and we share life. So a disciple is one who shares life shares their possessions within that life we have needs we say here what do you need and the way that we know needs is because we share life together that we know what their needs are that we're engaged with them and we look to them and say what do I have even at great cost to myself that I could now give to you in order to help meet your need again the American church has become centralized we need it all to run through the church It's a lot cleaner that way. My hope is that we would have, over the course of time, a more and more decentralized ministry, which means it's going to get messier, but it will become more effective. That in your life groups, in your men's groups, in your women's groups, in the places where you recreate, in your F3 groups, in your CBS Bible studies, in all the things that you're engaged in, you look around and you go, you have a need, we can help with that need. I'll step into that space and we can do that even at great cost to ourselves. The American church has an interesting way of showing generosity. We show generosity from the overflow of the excess. And it's great to be generous from that. How many of you have traveled around the world on in missions and been in other cultures with other believers? I would imagine one of the things that you have found in that is the incredible generosity of believers around the world to give from their lack, not from their surplus. When I lived in an orphanage for three months in Johor Bahru in Malaysia in 1991, we had toast and we had coffee for breakfast every morning. I found out a few weeks into our stay that the way that I got a piece of toast in the morning was one of the orphans didn't. Ha! <sighs> when I went and stay now overseas and I go and be with others They put me in. Guess what room, if I'm staying in their home, they put me in? The master bedroom. We'd like you to have our bedroom. We'd like you to have the best. We'll be displaced onto couches. We'll be displaced so that we can do this. The American church, we're not good at that yet, but I have great hope for us that we'll be willing to serve and to share uh, in that way. So we share our lives. We've got to move pretty quickly here. The fourth thing about a disciple, yes, they worship, they learn, they share, they serve. Verse 45, repeating, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. They were serving. Christ said he came to serve, not to be served that we see Him kneeling before His disciples to wash their feet in Luke chapter 13. Christ says to us, If then your Lord and Teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should go and do just as I have done, serving one another. What a humiliating posture for the Lord of the universe to be in. Washing dirty, nasty, male feet. And he said, guess what? You are not above your master. If you are my follower and you are my disciple, you will serve the dirty needs of those who are around you, no matter how dehumanizing it may be to your perceived dignity. Jesus calls us to go into those places and to serve one another's need. Paul said, I am a bondservant of Jesus. My life has been bought with a price. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And if it's Christ who lives in me, that means it's the kneeling, foot-washing Christ who lives in us. And that we go out and we serve in his name in order to win as many as possible to Christ, is what Paul said. We do all of these things. We serve. We share. We do all of this to bring glory and honor to Christ. But then to see some, as many as possible, come to faith. And that's the fifth mark. Mark. A disciple means to witness. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Our lives, our service, our sharing, our worship, our learning, everything that we do is bearing witness for Christ. And it is saying to the watching world, this is worth your life. We know the gospel well enough to articulate it and to communicate it to those who are around us. We know the lies of the enemy so well uh, that, as Francis Schaeffer said, we can take the top off of their house, find the places of tension, lead them to the tension in their worldview and present Christ to them there. To say your worldview falls apart right here, but Christ never falls apart. Are you willing to now give up your allegiances to all those other things and come to Christ and believing in the power of God to change a heart? How many of you have been able to change another person's heart? Anybody? Uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to bust your bubble. Not one of you. We do not have the power in and of ourselves to take a dead heart of stone and change it into a heart of flesh. We have the power to pray to an incredible, powerful God who comes in and he does stuff like this. And the Lord opened Lydia's heart that she might believe the teaching that Paul was giving, that he changed her heart. He opened her heart and we believe this. If God was able to change my dead stone heart, guess who else's heart he can change? Anybody's. We believe that. We live that. We preach that. We share that. We go out in that power and we believe that God is about changing hearts. And my hope this year in our ministries is that we would see through you the beauty of the gospel bearing fruit and seeing many come to add their names to the book of life through the ministry that god has given to you as a disciple worship learn share serve and witness for him let's pray